Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. I'm so excited about our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Sometimes things happen in medicine that astonish doctors. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger has interviewed patients for nearly 20 years that have unexplained spontaneous recoveries from potentially fatal medical conditions, including cancer. All provide evidence of a powerful link between our identities and our immune system. Dr. Rediger is a physician, best-selling author, and popular speaker. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and the medical director of McLean SE Adult Psychiatry and Community Affairs at McLean Hospital. A licensed physician and board-certified psychiatrist. He also has a Master's of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. His research with remarkable individuals who have recovered from incurable illnesses has been featured on the Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Oz show, among others. His best-selling book is Cured, Strengthen Your Immune System and Heal Your Life. This is his story and this is his passion. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me here. Um, I've got so many exciting topics and questions to discuss with you, but um, I'd like to dive into your research on spontaneous healing that you've done for nearly 20 years. It's fascinating. Yes, thank you. I'm happy to talk about it. How did you get started and what, what took you on this path? Well, I think ultimately it's been very much not only a professional journey, but also a personal one. I had a lot of burning questions, came out of a uh, farm in rural Indiana and out of a very restricted uh, religious world, came with an Amish roots, a lot of questions, and felt like the answers available to me weren't uh, really completely satisfactory to me. So I ended up taking off for college and then went to seminary at Princeton and med school and very much was on a search um, with burning questions. And then shortly after residency, um, I was a new faculty member at Harvard and a new medical director at McLean and an oncology nurse at Mass General in Boston came to me and said that she had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and asked if she could have my help explaining to her son the diagnosis that she had and, and pancreatic cancer, uh, especially hers, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, is a deadly disease with kind of a terrible brutish end usually and a person doesn't usually last long after diagnosis. She took off for a healing center and uh, and then call, started calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing healings and and felt that she was getting better herself and hoped I would look into this. And, and I declined. I didn't think anything was likely to be going on. But Nicola gets a lot of credit for getting me going on this research because she 
began uh, having people call me and say that they had medical evidence for their recoveries. Did I want to hear their stories? I said, no. And why uh, did you say no? You, it just wasn't. Well, I think it is complicated. I think the, um, I, I thought it was unlikely that anything was going on. I, I, I think um, the process of becoming a physician is a very powerful socialization process into a way of thinking that is brilliant in some ways and very limiting in others. And, and I uh, was skeptical that anything was likely to be going on. And also I was very busy as a young medical director and new faculty member and had a lot of responsibilities and um, people that I felt I needed to please and just didn't feel like I had time to, to uh, really look into that. But people began to send me their stories typed out or written out um, in long form and lots of pages a lot of times. And they would send me their medical records sometimes. Most of the stories that I saw during those early years, uh, I could explain away on the basis of being a really good chemotherapy responder or, or something. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I began to realize that some of the stories that I was seeing didn't make sense and the medical data didn't uh, support uh, the categories I was trying to fit them into. And so the long and short of it is eventually I began to look into it and it's been a long journey, uh, both personally and professionally. And it's completely transformed the way I view medicine, the way I view healing. And the, you know, the truth is I was a really slow learner. I, it took me years to finally get it that as a physician, I had been trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, but that we don't even ask how people heal. And that was a shocking realization for me to realize is that's not even one of the questions we ask. It's not something we typically research. And it's not what we think of when we sit down and talk to a patient. And there's lots of reasons why that's the case. But of, you know, I think the truth is we're at the end of the era of diseases and medications and at the end of a new exciting era where we actually begin to ask how people heal. We actually can study well-being now without threatening your academic career. And, you know, even seven or 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. So things are changing and things are beginning to open up, but it's, we've got a long ways to go yet to really open up this era of healing and well-being and where we can actually study that. What a great way of reframing it. It's more of a focus on the healing than the actual sickness itself. Yeah, that's actually a really vital distinction, I believe. I think that when early scientists took illness from the church and said, you cannot blame a person for their illness or say that it's a judgment from God, I think that was progress. It allowed these early scientists to begin comparing the signs and symptoms of one illness and separating that from the signs and symptoms of, of another illness and creating a taxonomy or classification system of illnesses. So now we have lots of diagnoses and we can uh, diagnose things correctly, but that's a really different set of questions than what heals those illnesses. And that's not something we've really looked at until recently, which is shocking, but that's really true. And also many people that are diagnosed with a certain illness, there is no known options available for to heal or the doctor might have no idea or the probabilities are so unlikely. Yes, that's true. And, you know, we're trained to start these medications, 
but in terms of really healing the illness, these medications don't heal the illness near as often as we think they do. And that's a very big topic, especially when we get to antibiotics or antivirals or vaccines and that sort of thing. But by and large, medications help us tread water, but they don't heal the underlying cause of the illness. They don't heal the immune system. They might take care of the symptoms temporarily, but they don't heal the body or heal the immune system. They just basically pro prolong the existence. Yeah, I think I think there's different ways one can wade into this very big discussion. But you know, I think what's the best way for the listener to do this? I think um, you know the immune system is really a big deal. Uh, the immune system and the health of the immune system is not just underlying infections or COVID or or that sort of thing. It's the immune system that that kicks out mutating cells that create cancer. It's the um, when a person has heart disease or lung disease or an autoimmune illness um, like Graves' disease or or something else um, or or cancer. These are these are autoimmune illnesses by and large. And so it's the immune system gone awry. And so, so most of the illnesses that people suffer from, in fact, all of the major killers like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune illness, lung disease, these are autoimmune illnesses where the immune system has started to attack the body itself. And the way this happens is that you have what's called chronic inflammation that begins to develop in the body and it's chronic inflammation that then creates these illnesses. And it's just a matter of time about, it's just a matter which body part is the weakest body part. That's where disease will man manifest first, whether it's thyroid disease or heart disease or diabetes or depression or anxiety or something like that, if that makes sense. It, it does, or pan pancreatic cancer, like you spoke before about Nicola. Yeah. So it's, so these diseases and the specific points are just a symptom of a holistic um, experience of the individual. That's right. I think as doctors, we're trained to focus on body parts. And so if you're, a, if you're interested in the heart, you become a heart doctor. If you're interested in the brain, you become a psychiatrist or a neurologist. If you're interested in the, in the abdominal area, you become a gastroenterologist. We've been focusing on body parts when if you stand back and look at the forest instead of just the trees, you begin to see, oh, chronic inflammation is at the basis of the heart disease, is, is at the basis of the diabetes or the autoimmune illnesses. And it's a very different picture that emerges with a very different understanding of what the cause is of all this. I guess then I have to ask you your, the question from all your incredible research, is there a commonality? People are probably saying, well, okay, what do I do? How do I have a spontaneous healing? So there's, I write in Cured about four pillars of healing and well-being. Mm -hmm. And these are for people who are ill and also for people who just want to create more well-being in our lives. And so in some ways you could say, this is also the way you decrease chronic inflammation in your body. And so uh, that's, and when you decrease chronic inflammation in your body, then you have less basis for any kind of disease, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune illness, 
um, or that anxiety and depression or bipolar disorder and that sort of thing. So the, the first pillar that I talk a lot about and is often the gateway into making these kinds of changes in one's life is nutrition. And nutrition, at least in the United States and maybe to some degree in Australia, um, is an area where there's a lot of misunderstanding and um, misinformation, unfortunately. I can tell you where I was sitting in medical school on the days when we had our very brief education about nutrition. And looking back now, after interviewing for years, these people who have amazing recoveries and what they taught me about nutrition, I was given complete misinformation about nutrition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was taught that, that, uh, that in the United States and in the Western industrialized countries, that people don't have malnutrition, they have overnutrition because we eat too much. So we have too much nutrition. Well, that's actually completely wrong. I think people are actually starved to obesity um, as a friend of mine wrote a book by that title. And it's a great title, Starved to Obesity. It's a great title. And my friend Emily Bowler wrote this book after years of struggling with obesity and fad diets and heart disease and high blood sugar and um, high cholesterol and anxiety and depression. And, and then she discovered how to create a nutritional plan that's with nutritional density, where you get foods that are really densely packed with nutrients, phytochemicals, minerals, and vitamins. And, and then she found out that you don't have to count calories. You don't have to worry about all the different foods you're choosing as much as just make sure they have a lot of nutrients in them. And then your body quits triggering the hunger mechanism because of all the empty calories that makes your body looking for the, the minerals and vitamins and phytonutrients that it needs. And it shuts off the hunger mechanism and you begin to lose weight because you don't get all the empty calories anymore. And I think her book is brilliant in that way. And I can tell you her story if you want. It's a remarkable story or um, or people can even see pictures of how her life and body and health changed as she went through this process. Wow. Sure. If you don't mind just briefly just talking about her experience. Yeah. yeah. So in uh, July of 2008, um, she had really gone through a lot. She had experienced a lot of trauma and abuse as a child uh, she had gone through as a mother, the suicide of her son, which had been just heartbreaking yeah. and, and just, I think, fed the whole despair that she felt, the hopelessness she felt, the anxiety, the depression. And of course, it didn't help what she was putting into her body and, and years of struggle since childhood with trying to find a way to be thin enough and to meet her mother's expectations around what she should look like and just trying to be good enough as a human being and food became love for her in some ways, I think at some level. And, and, and so she was an artist and, and she was actually in Italy when she had this inbreaking realization. She was before the statue of David uh, done by Michelangelo, this magnificent yeah. sculpture. And she was so offended because apparently someone had defaced the statue in some way or defaced the sculpture. And she was so offended as an artist that someone would do something to such a work of art. And then it was like the curtains parted and she realized, 
oh my God, I've been defacing my own body and mind with toxic foods and thoughts for my entire life. And if that's an awful thing to do to a sculpture, that's an awful thing to do to me. And she said, you know, it was really a profound realization. She said, I'm the temple of God. I'm, I'm supposed to be treating my body and my thoughts as something sacred. Um, and in terms of what I take into my mind and body. And so she made this resolve that she was going to really change the kinds of foods and thoughts that she put into her body. And around that same time, she read this book that changed her life called Eat to Live by Joel Furman. And he just simply said that, that, that real nutrition is not about restricting calories. It's not about counting calories. It's not about making sure you have certain proportions on your plate. Uh, but that's about really getting nutrient dense foods into your body so that the hunger mechanism isn't triggered any longer. And that's what she did. And so she took this picture of herself in July of 2008, which you can find online at emilybuller.com, E-M-I-L-Y-B-O-L-L-E-R.com. And she decided to track her journey. So that's what she did. July of 2008, she started this journey. July of 2009, uh, she finished that, um, that piece of her journey. And at that point, she had lost 100 pounds. She was off of all medications for her, um, her heart disease, her cholesterol, her blood pressure, her high blood sugar, her anxiety and depression. She was off of all medications completely. All of her numbers had normalized and she was so much happier and freer and just had a completely different life and a completely different understanding of who she was uh, without all these conflicting, difficult beliefs that she wasn't good enough any longer. And that's that was what, 12 years ago. And she's mm -hmm. just continued to move in the direction of feeling more free and and so much happier with who she is. And, 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 and since then she's written that book and now speaks publicly about her path and also does a lot of public speaking about uh, how to be with parents who've had a child who suicided, for example. And so has become a real light around nutrition and around uh, helping uh, those who've been through these kinds of things. And, and, it's just a great story and to see how much happier she is now and how she's healed her identity and eliminated these false beliefs of who she is that then freed her up to have a, to not see food as just love, for example. It's just a really remarkable testament and story, I thought. It is. Thank you for sharing that. It's so beautiful. And what's really interesting, it's not just what you said, you said it's the thoughts and the food. So it's a whole yes. mindset change. It's not just, okay, I'll change my diet and not change my thoughts because that doesn't work. Yeah, that's completely right. I think then it becomes a battle uphill. It's trying to use the will to fight uphill and, and the will won't, it will only take you so far. I think it has to be, a, I think the eyes of one's heart have to be open towards oneself with compassion and true understanding so that it's not the will trying to drive this, but a new understanding and a realization of the dignity and the value of who one is, the goodness that we each bring into the world, and to eliminate the false beliefs that 
that prevent us from seeing and experiencing that. And I think that's a really key piece of all uh, the healing that I've studied. I just have to ask you, and I'm digressing from your steps or your pillars, I can't wait to talk about that, but most, many people, I, you're the expert, find long-lasting change hard. Initial out, yeah. outbursts of change, great, but then whether it's a diet or a mindset or even healing, they go back into remission. Yeah, and I think that's why this, this healing of beliefs where one can build a foundation based upon what's right and beautiful and magnificent about who one is and the elimination of the false beliefs that prevent one from experiencing love and compassion for oneself. That's, that's what creates the motivation and the joy and the, the impetus for this, because that's that new experience of who one is. That's what allows the change to really lock in and stay there because it just feels so much better. It's, it's like taking off a hundred pound backpack that a person has been carrying through life. These, these toxic beliefs that one isn't good enough or that you, your life is to be spent serving others or meeting the expectations of others instead of also paying attention to one's own well-being and taking up space in the world because you matter and that that's okay. That's a really different way of living. It's, it's so wonderful. Okay, so let, if you're ready, let's move on to the other <laughs> pillars. That was such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So the second pillar um, is healing one's immune system. And, and that's a really big topic. When we started to talk about that a little bit here. Germ theory. What is germ theory? So germ theory the way that we've taken that in, especially in Western cultures, is that the germ, whether it's a virus like COVID or a bacteria, uh, the germ needs to be eliminated. And once you eliminate the pathogen, then you've eliminated the disease. That's, that's what Pasteur, Louis Pasteur uh, taught uh, originally. And that was a real step forward for medicine, for sure. But during his lifetime, there was several colleagues who said, you know what, it's not quite that simple, folks. We have this inner terrain that is even more important. And they said that we are, we are surrounded inside and outside of our bodies all the time by millions of pathogens, whether they be bacteria or viruses or something else. And those pathogens only become invaders when something breaks down in our immune system. And, and so they said that, that the bacteria are the symptom, their invasion, their ability to invade the body is a symptom of a deeper decay or problem that already started. And so their analogy was, if you have a pile of trash sitting on your kitchen floor, is it better to just wave the flies away constantly or is it better to eliminate the trash? And so what they called inner terrain, we now call the microbiome. And I, I don't know how many people are familiar with the microbiome, but there's been 30 years of really good research accumulating now. And more and more people are starting to realize the importance of healing one's microbiome. But doctors by and large don't talk about this yet because it takes so many decades for research in the laboratory to get into clinical practice for all kinds of complicated reasons around what insurance will reimburse and, 
and how difficult it is for medicine to change. So, so I can talk about the microbiome more if that would be helpful to people. Particularly in this current climate in which we're living, I, I just have to say it's so interesting. I mean, we can isolate ourselves so much to the point that we put ourselves in a bubble, but what, what sort yeah. of life is that? And you're, I love that you're promoting we actually need to experience germs or viruses, yes. but when we have a strong immunity, right. there's a, a, we, yes. much less a possibility of it affecting us or it's attacking so us. True. Right. And so, and so, for example, there's this story, apocryphal or not, but it illustrates the point that Claude Bernard was teaching a class of students back in the day when Louis Pasteur and Claude Bernard were arguing about these issues. And Claude Bernard said, look, here's a glass of cholera. He, in, in front of his class of students, he said, here's a glass of cholera. And he drank it down in front of his students. And he said, I'm not going to get sick because I know how to take care of my inner terrain, my microbiome, mm -hmm. in other words. And he didn't get sick, of course, because he knew how to take care of his immune system. And then, and so this debate and argument between Louis Pasteur and Claude Bernard went on for decades on Louis Pasteur's deathbed. It's well documented by the son-in-law who did, a, I believe, a memoir of, of uh, Louis Pasteur and others who were there as witnesses that Louis Pasteur said, you're right. Um, the, the pathogen is nothing. The inner terrain is everything. And he really understood that at his deathbed. And, but our culture went ahead and took Pasteur's theory mm -hmm. that the point is to eliminate the pathogen. And that's as far as it needs to go. So I think what's true is there's so many things we can do to create really strong immune systems where we are not vulnerable to getting ill in the same way. And that's the one of the things I want to really say I've seen over and over and over again with these people who've, who I've documented have made remarkable recoveries after being told they were going to die. And there's a, so much we can do. So in terms of the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, there's a place for social distancing and there's a place for masks and quarantines and all that. And, and Pasteur did have a point. There's a point to what he says is true, but there's this whole other domain that needs to be brought into focus as well. That's so much more powerful and also real. And we need to create strong immune systems instead of just putting all of our tool tools, all the weight of our um, efforts with the pandemic, just on social distancing, quarantines and um and masks. That's putting a lot of weight on just a few strategies. And especially in places like the United States, it's had a massive psychological and economic toll on us. And now we have a psychiatric pandemic where people are sitting in the emergency room waiting for a psychiatric bed for 30 days or more at a time sometimes. And, and you can't find a therapist because people are seeing everyone who's available. And so- And is this a result of COVID of the, of the pandemic? Yeah. Because of the isolation. I mean, yes. students. What's that doing here. to people? It's just unbelievable. It's, it's devastating. I mean, there's so many, I could tell you just tragic stories, people who drop off their loved ones at the hospital and they can't go into the hospital for much of the last year plus. So you and cannot so, go into a hospital. Yeah, you can't go into the hospital. And so you don't know if you're ever going to see your loved one again. And sometimes you don't. Or nursing homes, you can't go in to see your your father or your grandmother or someone who's in the nursing home or or you'll have a loved one who will get COVID and you drop them off at the hospital and you 
can't see them. You can't easily know what's happening for them. You can't be with them at the scariest time in their life. And sometimes you don't get to see them again or say goodbye to them. And, and there's so many stories. Um, or you, so you have a person in a nursing home who has some dementia and, and they don't understand why their family can't visit anymore every day or frequently. They don't understand why they can't leave their room to walk up and down the hall, which they need to do to stay active if they're going to keep living. Uh, they, they can't just stay in their bed and in the room, but COVID requires a lot of restrictions. And sometimes the restrictions of COVID have been worse than the COVID itself, unfortunately. And so the amount of anxiety and grief and loss and depression around this has been massive for so many people. And so you know, you've got students who need to interact, uh, who need to be active to do things in school to learn and grow. And they're sitting in front of a video screen at home all day or in front of a computer screen. And there's just so many ways in which the stress and the isolation of all of this has been devastating to people. And what impact that may have on generations. On generations, absolutely. On brain development in children who, who didn't get the social interaction they've needed for the past year, or they just couldn't pay attention to the dry lectures on a video screen about math, for example. And so they end up sitting in an emergency room, sometimes waiting for a psychiatric bed. And that's- There's a long wait. It's a long wait, sometimes over 30 days, unfortunately. I supervise some emergency rooms right. for these aspects of clinical care um, and um, it's heartbreaking. And there's obviously been an increase during this pandemic. Massive. That's why there's such a backlog. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough therapists. We don't have enough psychiatrists. It's You just feel like there's this massive unmet need. We're buying a, a building down the street and converting it to open up 68 more beds, but that takes time and that's still just a drop in the bucket. And not it's enough. A, it's not enough. And many people are putting their hopes on this the vaccine that's come out presently. Mm-hmm. And vaccines, and you know, there's so much we don't know about these these particular mRNA vaccines and the or the other, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is different than mRNA vaccine. But there's so much we don't know. Um, the scientists are doing the best they can with the limited time they have to create safe, effective vaccines. Um, and we'll see how this unrolls, but we will find out retrospectively what a lot of the side effects were and what the efficacy is of these vaccines. Um, and so we're gonna learn as we go, unfortunately, and it's just the way it, it has to be. But I don't think vaccines should be our only strategies. Every vaccine is different in terms of its efficacy and in terms of its safety profile. And so you can't just make blanket statements about vaccines. But, you know, there, for example, when you look at the flu vaccine in the United States and elsewhere, it's, it's, it's not a cure-all. Um, people still get the flu. Um, it's, it might help in some ways, but it, it's, 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 it's a lot more complicated than, oh, take the vaccine and you're going to be all better. So 
again, every vaccine is different, but there's just a lot we don't know. And science can help us up to a degree, but there's just a lot that science hasn't had time to figure out with us. And also, sorry, please go on. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I was just thinking about sometimes often the data is very hard to interpret. There's a lot of different data that's offered to us. And Yes, the, the day, and the data just simply reflects that there's so much we don't know because so much of it does conflict and it's made more difficult because some of that data has been politicized and people's beliefs so much influence the data that they find and pay attention to. And so, and so you can find partial truths on many different sides of this and it's hard to integrate all of that into the whole truth. Now, myself, I did get the vaccine. I got the mm-hmm. Pfizer vaccine. We spoke um, about and, this before the interview. Yeah, and you know, I'm very comfortable getting it. I did it not because I had massive uh, belief that that was going to save the day, because I really believe in taking care of the immune system and my health. But um, I got it because I want people to feel safe around me. I think that's mm-hmm. valid, and I want to be free to travel and speak at conferences and and uh, not create a lot of uh, challenges there. So I did it, but I did it with recognition that I have a strong, healthy body and I can deal with any side effects. I have a strong microbiome. And so if there's any issues with the vaccine, I figured my body would be fine for it, for taking care of that and managing it. Um, so it's, a, it's you know, I, I wish I could say that, that the evidence is more clear than it is. There's, there is good evidence that these vaccines do help, but we have to be realistic that it's more complicated than just a one size fits all or, or that it, there's no big questions that we still don't know, don't know the real answer to. And it's, it's a big debate, whether, whether one decides to have the vaccine or not, you're also promoting that it's not, you know, there's other factors. So your internal yeah. landscape needs to be healthy and taken Absolutely. care of as well. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. It's because, you know, these, these, these things are not just benign either. I mean, the whole issue of medicines in general, um, we know, and I talk about this in Cured a little bit, we know that when it comes to antibiotics, for example, antibiotics do take care of the immediate infection. And that can be life-saving at times. And I've seen how life-saving that can be, but it doesn't heal the underlying problem in the immune system. And we know that the more times a woman, for example, has had a course of antibiotics before age 18, it increases her risk of breast cancer, for example. And so if you keep wiping out your microbiome, wiping out all those healthy bacteria, you're wiping out a massive part of your immune system that has to keep rebuilding itself. And it's not just that women who have had antibiotics have more risk of breast cancer. It's a dose-dependent relationship. The more times you've had antibiotics, the higher your higher your risk of breast cancer. And so it's just so important that one uses antibiotics when they need them, especially when it's a life-saving, uh, life-threatening condition. But it's even more important that we create strong immune systems so we don't need them all the time. And, and that takes that takes changing our lifestyles. Yeah such a valuable message you're sharing with the world and it's again it's also our thoughts and beliefs some people say that 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 dis-ease or disease within the body shows up to realize that something we need to change not just to take a medication as a fix all but there's a holistic change that's required 
that's a critical point. I think you're so right that we medicate symptoms and try to eliminate the symptoms when we should be asking, what is the message that these symptoms are telling me that needs to be adjusted in my life? What is the message of the illness? That's a great question. I'm glad you raised that. It's a really different way of thinking. Well, you said it much better than I did. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> so what, what, what are the other pillars, if you don't mind discussing those? <laughs> yeah. So let me just recap a little bit. I should say a little Please. bit more about nutrition. Nutrition is, is uh, there's, it's a big topic because, because the trifecta of, of industry and how that interacts with the academics who are paid by industry to, to uh, have certain results and then how the interaction of those two bodies interact with uh, government and lobbyists and government regulations around nutrition um, is complicated and uh, the science is science, but it's also uh, spin science to some degree because there's a lot of money at stake with all of this. And so, Amazing term again. Which we yeah. And so one just has to be aware that that I believe in science, but I want it to be better science because because the influence of business can really influence um, what is taught as healthy nutrition. What I have learned uh, is that the people I studied, there's surface differences between the dietary approaches that these people took. But when you look underneath the superficial differences, what you see over and over again is that people by and large eliminated sugar, or they didn't eliminate it always completely, but they eliminated a lot of it. They eliminated most sugar, most refined flours, like the enriched flours uh, that are basically sugar. Um, and, they enrich, and they eliminated a lot of the processed foods that drive a lot of um, the Western diet. And so uh, I can say a lot more about that if you want. Some people eliminated animal products and gluten, some didn't, and that's a, a big topic in itself. Some people have a major response to gluten. Some people have a moderate inflammatory response in their gut to gluten, and some people have a minor uh, inflammatory response to the processed gluten that we now have in Western culture. And that can create an inflammatory condition to varying degrees for different people. Um, I think, uh, so again, sugar, over a hundred years ago, the average person consumed five pounds or yeah, four pounds of sugar a year. Not a big deal. Can I just clarify artificial sugar? So natural sugars found in fruits and are, are okay? Yes, correct. So artificial, um, well, natural sugars in fruits are fine and healthy. Not a problem. There's, there's natural um, things in those fruits that offset a lot of the harmful effects. Now, I think if a person has diabetes, you shouldn't eat lots and lots of fruit. You want to be thoughtful about that. But uh, certainly eating fruit is much as a whole different story than eating lots of candy bars mm -hmm. or having a Coke, which has 20 teaspoons of sugar in it, for example. Wow. You know, what is it? I think it's 20 it's ounces of Coke, is it? That's 20 te teaspoons of sugar. That's a lot of sugar. So I think the way sugar creates chronic inflammation is that you have these sharp sugar granules at the microscopic level that careen through your bloodstream. And when, so, you know, if a hundred years ago, the average person had four pounds per year on average, the average Western industrialized 
person in their country has 154 pounds of sugar a year. Your body just wasn't made to handle that kind of load. Sugar is in everything. It's even in the, in the salmon patties at Whole Foods, for example, a really um, good, I mean, it's just shocking. It's in the spaghetti sauces. It's in um, all kinds of things. I saw an article recently, Subway is a, uh, is a fast food chain around yes. the world. Yeah. And um, we need to remember that the refined flours, the enriched flours in their um, rolls are um, sugar basically. But even on top of that, the Supreme Court in Ireland recently ruled that their uh, rolls that they use for their bread can't be called bread because it has such a high sugar content Gosh. in it on top of the refined and enriched flours. So it's just shocking how, how high the load of sugar is in so many of our foods. And that's, it was a very hard learning curve for me when I began learning this. I had a really steep learning curve and I had no idea how addicted to sugar I was. So it was a difficult time to learn about that and begin figuring out how I could go to restaurants easily and enjoy my life. And it took me uh, some months to figure that out, but now it's easy to go to restaurants. I know what to order. I know what I'm dealing with and I've educated myself about it, but it was, it was a learning curve. I, I can't say it was easy. <laughs> now but it's you, easy. But now it you wouldn't live any other way. Oh, now I've, I lost 40 pounds without trying all my numbers, which were creeping up, stabilized and completely normalized. And now you know, I, and just like so many of the people I've studied, they feel younger, look younger and um, are healthier than their friends and healthier than they were 20 years ago. And that certainly is what happened for me. I'm, I'm healthier now than I was 20 or 30 years ago. And I run every day. I, I'm just not going to have the illnesses that a lot of my colleagues are going to have. Yes. And healthier in the mind as well. Or thoughts. Yeah. And you just feel better. You're not, I mean, when you, I mean, I'm just don't want to go back to that. And now when I have those kinds of foods, I realize, oh, they're, they just taste like chemicals and they just, my, my taste buds have changed so much. I, I feel bloated and just don't feel as good afterwards. And so I, I'll never go back to, to that. It's, I now look back at the resistance I had and how hard it was to learn. And I realized, my resistance was because I didn't know. I was, I was so ignorant of what it took to develop this new path. And it just, it was overcoming my resistance and learning this new way of being that's just its own reward because you just feel so much better and you look so much better. Well, you look, you look great. Well, they, so do you, but, but you. <laughs> I was basically, a slow learner. <laughs> well, I am as well sometimes in different areas, but basically it's eating things that grow. Yes. Yes, that's right. Natural foods that grow, a plant-based whole foods diet. I think there's nothing that is better medicine than that. And it heals the mind and the body and it heals chronic inflammation and your body craves that. And you just feel better without all this inflammation in your body. I'm, I'm digressing again here. And well, since you are a psychiatrist, but why do you why do you think people don't educate themselves, whether it's nutrition or about the pandemic or the options available to them or the other information sources that are there that might highlight different truths? I think that we live in cultures where what's normal feels right because we grow up in it. And so it's what everyone is doing around us and that feels 
it's like the air everyone is breathing. And if a fish doesn't know what wet is, it doesn't know anything else. And so I think we're like fish that doesn't know what wet is because we've never known anything else. And to begin to individuate or separate from all of that and find a road less traveled, you have to really have the ability to rise above what everyone else is doing and see that objectively as being more limiting than we realize and to have the leadership qualities within you to find a different path. And that, that was hard for me. And it's hard for all of us to begin to stand out from the crowd and to begin understanding what wet is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and a road less traveled. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think that's one way to answer it. I think, but more, but what's great is more and more people are beginning to find this path and it's becoming much more of a thing where one can find people and it's not considered boo-boo anymore or, or weird if someone has a green drink, um, for example. And it's, it used to be when I would bring a green drink into the hospital, which was supposed to be about healing, um, people would laugh and, and I would look at the brownies that were sitting there on the nurse's station and go, really? So... So you, you think what I'm drinking is weird and yet you're eating all these chemicals. And so your mind shift begin, your mind, your, your mind begins to shift in a different direction and you begin to see things differently. That's so true. So moving on to the other pillars, I can't wait to hear about them as well. Nutrition is fundamentally important, which changes everything, mind, body. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, we start to heal the chronic inflammation, then you have less basis for having these diseases and less basis for anxiety and depression and all kinds of things. So we've talked a little bit about nutrition. We've talked a little bit about the immune system. The third pillar is healing our stress response. That's also a really big topic. I am shocked to realize how many of us, including me historically, have lived in chronic fight, flight, or freeze. And the physiology of living in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, where your body is secreting norepinephrine uh, and the catecholamines, the stress hormones like mm -hmm. cortisol and adrenaline, when your immune cells are being bathed in those stress hormones day in and day out uh, while you're so stressed, whether it's sitting in traffic or dealing with crying children or trying to deal with what your boss seems to expect, all these different things, it really creates um, these stress hormones being secreted on your immune cells. And we know on the basis of really clear science that these stress hormones secreted on the immune cells call these cause these brilliant immune cells that are so hyper-specialized, they begin to misfire. They begin to miss their target. They begin to attack the body instead of attack the pathogen, or they attack the body instead of getting rid of the mutating cells that could become cancer. And so we know this. And, and so healing the stress response, getting out of chronic fight, flight, or freeze, uh, means often healing the trauma in one's past, for example. There's so many kinds of ways in which a person can experience trauma as they grow up or as an adult. And if we don't deal with these things and really lay the fear that's associated with the traumas, if we don't deal with the feeling unworthy that these traumas can leave us with or feeling like we're not good enough, um, 
we can be left with a body that's predisposed to have real issues and chronic inflammation because of the chronic secretion of these stress hormones. So beginning to heal your stress response, beginning to heal the traumas, beginning to heal these false beliefs that question your value or cause one to feel not good enough and get into a more parasympathetic healing state. That's your body has to be in the parasympathetic mode, the healing state in order to heal. And that really has a lot to do with what we call the vagus nerve, which is the super highway that goes through or the center part of our body connects to all the major organs. And it's about getting the vagus nerve active so that our body can heal. It's about relaxation, yes, but it's also about experiencing authentic love and connection with others. So for example, when, when a person smiles authentically, or when when a person, when we make eye contact with each other and our eyes light up with making that real authentic eye contact, that's the vagus nerve that's causing the lips to curve up into a smile. It's the vagus nerve that causes our eyes to make real contact with a person. And even if it's somebody that we speak to for two minutes that we don't know that well, somebody that maybe we meet in the post office or, or on the street, or if it's a long-term life partner, making an authentic connection, those micro moments of positivity resonance, as Barbara Fredrickson uh, has called it, they have a massive effect on our immune system and getting us into a re not just a relaxed place, but in a place where we feel authentic love. And that love causes a cascade of, of the hormones that our bodies love. So it causes the secretion of oxytocin, which is the love molecule. It causes the secretion of serotonin, the antidepressant molecule. It causes the secretion of dopamine, the pleasure molecule. The immune system loves these chemicals. And when they experience these chemicals, they begin to wake up. They begin to function correctly. They begin to do their hyper-specialized job correctly. They find the invaders and the pathogens or the mutating cells, and they get rid of them. And they they don't attack the body. And so, so getting into a parasympathetic mode through either relaxation and or authentic love connection with yourself and with those around you. It's this upward, upward spiral of the more you do, the more you get and the easier it becomes to activate that kind of self-reinforcing spiral. Well, I'm feeling the love after that speech. That was fabulous, but <laughs> it is, it is, it's, it's, it's almost retraining ourselves. Um, yes. to not, many of us are addicted. Well, I'm not, but many people are addicted to that flight or fight response that you talk about. And that might be great for a moment if we're being chased by a, a tiger or something, but not right. long-term. It, it's very valid yeah. if we're in a physical fear that we need to release all those I don't know the technical term, but release all those, whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to run right. very fast, but yes. we continue that for days and weeks and months. And that yes. does affect our body. It's not sustaining. It it's not sustaining. And I can tell you as a psychiatrist and a physician that most of the tigers that we see in modern culture, 
They're paper tigers, and we make them in our imagination a much bigger deal than they really are. And so I think it's so important that we practice looking at the things that we're afraid of, and we just practice challenging ourselves to march towards those paper tigers, challenge those paper tigers. And in my mind, I actually do meditations where I walk towards the tigers that I'm fearful of and either shake their hand or embrace them, depending which I'm ready for, (laughs) but to realize that I've made up this whole story in my mind about what they are and they're not what we think. And and the pathways of love versus fear are mutually exclusive. If you find a path where you can authentically feel love, then you by definition are beginning to shrink the fear, beginning to shrink the anxiety, beginning to shrink the panic and make it into something more realistic. Now there's places to be fearful, but we do over and over create these, we make, we hear a threat that's really at a volume of two, but we interpret it to be a volume of 10 or 20. And so we make it this bigger thing than it is. And then we'd ruminate on it and take it into our heart and just mool it over and think over and over about what a thing to worry about. And before long, we're in a real anxiety state and can't sleep at night and your health is going downhill. And then you end up- hard to change. Yeah, we have to have active practices where we- really learn how to walk towards the fear and be grateful for the opportunity to learn and grow our capacity to walk up to the tiger and and punch it in the nose and realize it's a paper tiger or I love that. Or, to, or to hug it. <laughs> so everything you've talked about today is strengthening our body, our mind, our soul, our spirit and preventing disease. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, one thing that I've come to understand over time is that one of the brilliant aspects of Western culture is that we send a person with a medical problem to the doctor. We send a person with a psychological problem to the therapist and a person with a spiritual problem to the priest, rabbi, minister, or imam. Mm. But the truth is if we as human beings, or if the experts we go see don't step back outside of these areas of specialization and realize the whole person and see how all of these aspects of who we are interact, we're not going to have the real opportunity to integrate all of these into a real strategy for developing courage, developing gratitude, developing a deeper capacity to have love instead of fear. And that's what really begins to shrink the, the, the chronic inflammation and the risk of illness in our lives, either psychologically or also medically. It's, it's a big topic. It's saying a lot, but it's still true. Oh, it's wonderful. And, and with your uh, research with spontaneous remissions of people that have healed themselves, they have all those elements incorporated into the healing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things it's taught me is that the spiritual dimension is not just a piece of the pie when it comes to the person. It's not just one area of specialization. It it interpenetrates all of our lives. It, it penetrates the physical and the mental and the emotional. And, and, and so finding ways to activate that sense of well-being, authentic well-being. One of the most shocking findings that I've had to come to terms with is that 
the most common statement that people have made in the context of their recoveries is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize that they needed to stop taking care of everyone else. Mm. They need to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others and instead begin focusing on what creates genuine, authentic well-being for them. I can't tell you how many people will be diagnosed with cancer and at one level, they'll be terrified, but at another level, it'll be a relief like, wow, if I've got 12 months to live, I guess I don't have to go to law school like dad is pushing me to do. Or I don't have to, I don't have to just be taking care of mom and dad and my kids and grandparents and everyone else. I can focus on doing what I want to do and what I need to do for myself. And that death to the false self paradoxically, then can sometimes become the doorway into a richer, fuller life. And then sometimes the person doesn't need the illness in the same way. I mean, that's, it's a shocking thing, the way this works, but the death of the false self for, in order for a new self to be born, that's more authentic and has more well-being and more understanding and experience of what's right and really wonderful about a person you, you can't replace that i think you just answered my question i was about to say aside from per, buying your book cured <laughs> and the link will be in the show notes what if someone's been diagnosed with a potentially terminal illness what what's your advice you just i kind of guess you just answered it i think that we all matter more than we have a clue about I think there's so much more right with us than wrong with us, but it's just easier to believe the bad stuff. And so I think a lot of us go through our lives and quietly have concerns that maybe we're not good enough or we just need to take care of trying to just be good enough to meet the needs of others when there's this whole purpose that we have to be on this planet and to begin paying more attention to that rather than trying to please others it just brings about so much more happiness and, and the body just responds to that. And, you know, I think the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score of all the traumas that we've had. I have a friend, Gabor Mata, who wrote a book called When the Body Says No. And he just talks so eloquently about how if you don't know how to say no to all the perceived expectations in your life, your body will eventually say no for you. Mm. And the people who I study they, they are so grateful for the illness in retrospect, because that's the gift of the illnesses that help them understand the importance of understanding and experiencing their own value and honoring that. And what's really important, not all those material external expectations and things at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Well, I've asked all the questions. Is there anything you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you? Well, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here. I really appreciate your energy and your questions. I think the things we're talking about are just so important. I can't tell you how often I got this. Uh, I get these wonderful emails, and to hear and to see these emails where a person says that that I, I realize that I'm living in a self-created boat and I need to burn my boat and thank you for that. And to just cry and realize that, that this isn't just an illness, this illness is a message about something that so compassionately is trying to say, 
you bring something good into the world, please honor your body, honor your mind, and find a place to live a life that's authentically yours. And that's, you, you can't, you, you can't replace the value and the happiness associated with that. What a beautiful way to end the show, Dr. Rediger. Oh my gosh, you're such an inspiration thing. And I mean, what remarkable work and what remarkable hope you're giving to people. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye, Jeffrey. See you. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.